Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Today is Sunday, it is the 20th of February, 2022. Michael, how are you? I am pretty well, Gary. I got through the storms safe and sound, so I am happy enough to be indoors and looking out, rather than outdoors and looking in. And now you are here with me to be a friendly voice to the listeners, a companion, unobtrusive. I think I, I'm out there, I'm, 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 I'm a healing presence. So on that uplifting and glorious note, Michael, I think we should start with some positive news for once, because we don't do enough positive news, and the world is positive, in a world of endless opportunity and beauty. Yes. I'm already prepping for my next Christmas episode. I could burst into a Disney-based song any minute, so let's get to the news. So, recently I've enjoyed seeing, Michael, that we have entered a a golden age for... record-breaking sporting attacks, (laughs) particularly in women's sport. I'm sitting here thinking, what is this positive story? I can't think of the positive story. Of the stories that we had discussed and looked at, I thought, what's the positive one? I should have known. I'm sorry. Yes, Gary, we are living in a golden age of record-breaking athletic achievement. Go on. And it only looks like it's going to continue. And we've seen that recently in um, swimming. Some excellent results being posted, Michael. Yes. And I think it's um, it's not going to be long until we see more and more of those type of results across many, many sports. So, and how, Gary, are these wonderful achievements being posted? I mean, how is this going on? Why? Well, you see, what we've managed to do is we've looked at women's sport and went, what if we let men compete? And, Michael, that has led to some explosive results. But, Gary, men are not allowed to compete. How would you see men are allowed to compete, Michael? But tell me, Gary, how... How are men allowed to compete when they are not allowed to compete? This, I'm very confused. Explain this to me with examples if you can. Well, you see, so what we did was we took sport, the thing which is probably the most impacted by genetics, physiology, uh, hormone levels. I mean, very much hormone levels. In fact, if you have too much testosterone, it's usually a sign that you're using steroids. And we decided that none of those things mattered as long as someone said they were a woman, despite the fact that they are genetically male. And oftentimes when you look at them don't look like women well never never judge a book by its cover my mother used to say Gary there's great wisdom to that yeah but then I have a feeling your mother never looked at any of the East Germans competing in the Olympics well not much no because Michael looking at that it was pretty clear something was going on some women have moustaches Gary it's just the way you know and as you say the hormone levels one of the reasons I myself have never been able to compete in any kind of professional sport is because as you say I mean if you've very high levels of testosterone it looks like you're taking steroids and Gary I am just nothing but testosterone that's just the nature of the beast and I am a uh, beast the old nickname I used to have but let's not go into that so we're talking swimming Gary you see in the case of the two stories that I think you're referring to in the swimming world it's slightly unusual in this case because in one case you have a, a what was a man transitioning to a woman so okay that's kind of an obvious thing you have the benefit of 20 whatever it is two years of testosterone in your creating bigger stronger bones larger lung capacity bigger heart higher aerobic uh, function uh, stronger longer arms bigger muscles all that stuff which we're told by the way by a number of sporting organizations doesn't really make any difference and that's actually the single best thing about all these stories the fact that there are still individuals and politicians sporting organizations which will say irrelevant to what your position is about the metaphysical truth of what is a man or what is a woman but will say that the advantage is conferred hormonally and genetically about being born biologically male 
are not relevant, are not significant. That's fantastic that you can look into a camera and say that. I think you just, that's a gold medal winning performance there. I blame the Gnostics. <laughs> yeah, but Gary, we're all sick of you blaming the Gnostics. It's I'm just saying. This, this it's is, always the fucking Gnostics. This is you. a classic example of the mind-body heresy. And we put that down by force. We did. Uh, you, you blame the Gnostics. I blame Descartes. Ghosts in the machine. No respect for the body with this weird thing that exists out of it. But the other story is slightly weirder. It is, in fact, a story of a woman, biologically born woman, transitioning to become a man. How does she get? What advantage does she have? Now, she's still, I should be clear, still competing as a woman because she has not yet begun taking uh, testosterone. Now, I will be curious to see, does she continue to try and compete uh, as a competitive swimmer against men? Uh, Because that would be interesting uh, to see if there does turn out that there is actually an ability. But do you know why she is believed to have now an advantage? I am just repeating what I've seen written, Gary, so that's all I can tell you. In the process of becoming a woman, she has had her breasts removed and now competes topless in a sense, wearing just bikini briefs or, you know, the standard speedos. Yeah, I didn't notice that. That's that's a bit odd. Um, it's, it's a bit of a visual indicator in a field where no one else dresses like that. It looks really weird, doesn't it? When you, saw, you see the people all lined up and there's this individual. And it is believed that this surgical intervention has in some way given her, uh, how would I say, a sort of a, a dynamic advantage, would you say? Is that the word? I, I don't know. Ballistic advantage? Aquadynamic? But I'd be very curious, as I say, to see if this continues uh, after and when will he continue uh, to compete uh, with men. So are we, what's the story legality with the legal, I mean, for the Olympics? The Olympics are coming up, aren't they? Are the Olympics, are we? The Olympics are always coming up, I suppose. What's the story there? Are we, are we going to be just in seeing more and more of this happening? Where So there have been, amongst like high-level sporting bodies, there has been a bit of a back and forth on this. Most of them are currently... Uh, looking at this as just working on testosterone. So if you can keep your testosterone below a certain level, you'll be allowed in. That's not the case in all sporting organizations for the very simple reason that um, the testosterone limits because they have to account for natural variance in women and intersex individuals actually uh, are usually substantially higher than would naturally be found in most women's bodies. Yes. So even if you cut to that level, you can still be substantially higher than other women. And there is new research starting to come out now because the assumption had been that when you transition you lose most of most of what you'd built up and now it looks like actually it's a relatively small reduction like it is a reduction if you start blocking the amount of testosterone in your body or reducing it you're going to become worse at sports but it's nowhere near what people thought it would be so you're starting to see organizations wonder openly about how fair it is and the debate has now gone on to when is it fair to discriminate against people if you like i think the discovery seems to be that the sun capital kind of of testosterone has left leaves behind it a larger residual advantage than people had originally thought. Uh, if memory serves, and it may not, rugby has decided uh, that it's going to uh, keep on the birth cert basis. I think boxing has also. 
the World Rugby did come out with that ruling. And it's actually, they published a lot of the papers they used. It was very interesting. They brought in a lot of transgender groups and a lot of medical groups. And the end result was them saying that, um, yes, there are advantages, but the particular problems for rugby is that there's a lot of physical contact. Given the the height, the, the range of the differences and the advantages that a transgender player would have over naturally born women, there were issues of safety. That's the key thing. It's not, I think those areas or those sports where they're most likely to take, shall we say, a less progressive position on this issue tend to be those sports where rather than their concern is not a competitive competitive advantage, but straight up safety. Now, World Rugby did say uh, when they brought that out that that was for international and uh, high level play and that clubs could do what they wanted below that level. Also, you're going to have to explain how it is the case that it's a high at a high level, it's a danger issue, but at a club level, it's not. How is that? How does that work? Why is it dangerous then, but it's not dangerous here? I mean, it's either it's either dangerous, or it's not dangerous. Because okay, you're talking about at different levels of speed and skill and whatever between international. But if you were playing, I say you're playing at the in the AIL, you're playing for Lansdowne or something like that. You're going to be playing up against. You're going to be playing guys who are. Either internationals, but they're on. They've been dropped, or they're going to. Are are guys who are potentially going to be internationals? It's not that you're not you're you're you're, you're playing dog shit, but at the level of physicality and the size and the of and the, the impact of even like division two and division three, you've got to be meeting a, a very physical game still. And how that how you could say that it's somehow one in and one in one context is going to be safe, dangerous, but in one context is safe. Uh, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No, it's been, it's been a while since I re- read the World Rugby reports because I think they came out a year or two ago. Yeah, we reported on the time because they had, uh, had a quite a lot of interesting referred to quite a lot of interesting studies research yeah and i mean they did they did really everything they could to try and bring in uh, transgender voices to it and people were still very pissed off when they came out they were because they said it was discriminatory and they, the problem there michael is that they're right of course they're right but we've gotten to an odd position where to say something is discriminatory is to say that something is immoral in some way whereas the entire basis of female sports is discriminatory so i mean this is it's a, this is a tedious uh, observation that we've been for people we've been making it for so very long that once upon a time the word discrimination to describe somebody as a very discriminating person once it was a a compliment but the very nature of sport is it it creates hierarchies where that person is better than you why is he better than me because he can run quicker and this particular contest is to the sea who runs the quickest and the person who wins the quickest is the best. Now, we don't, we do this kind of thing less and less in ordinary life, but sport is based on the very notion of better and worse, winner and loser and hierarchy. And <laughs> until we get to the point where the Olympics, you turn up and everybody gets a medal, that's the way it's going to be. The, the, what they seem to be talking about now at the minute is to have a women's division and then an open division instead of a men's division and just anyone can go in that if they want, be they woman, man, mineral or vegetable. Uh, and that will be grand, and we will find that everybody that goes into it will actually be. But the men's division isn't the problem, Gary. No, no one cares about transgender people in men's division because they don't win. So No, if you want to, go ahead. It's not surprising that um, transgender people don't win, considering the massive levels of doping in high-level men's sport, including at the Olympics. Yeah. And not just, like, the Russians. <laughs> It is endemic, which is why it's very unfortunate that the Olympics tend to keep testing samples for years. And occasionally, 
occasionally, Michael, someone will develop a new uh, procedure that can detect things that were previously undetectable or can detect them outside of its range. And suddenly metals just start falling. That is an absolute bitch, isn't it? Almost like nearly everyone is using steroids. It's an absolute bitch when you think you have found a way that you've got your masking done perfectly, you've got your timing done perfectly, everything goes well. You go to the Olympics, you get your gold medal, and then some nerd six years later discovers some new chemical process and bang, suddenly you're, you're disqualified. That thing you thought couldn't be detected after two weeks? Now it's two months. That's not right, Gary. And even five years later, they'll come and they'll take your medals off you. There has to be a point at which the, they say, okay, everybody hasn't been caught now, you can relax. Because you did it, you did your cheating so well that, in a sense, we're giving you a medal for your cheating. Have you ever seen the um, the list of top hundred meter results by person and anyone who's had a doping charge is just struck out. Mm. It's not a long list, Michael. Well, you say in both, really, isn't it? They're always bad-minded people with bad words and bad mouths, Gary. You have to ignore them, or else the world they'll spoil the world for you. It's just rotten. I mean, to me. I know it's a cliche, but Lance Armstrong. Now, to say that there were suspicions that there was a widespread doping going on in the world of professional cycling would would be saying very little. Of all of the sports, Gary, and I'm including East German field sports in that. Cycling was the one where everybody thought, hmm, I think there's a... But for someone to be able to win the Tour de France seven times and not get caught, I mean, it seems fairly obvious that the only thing that what was effectively happening in world cycling was that there had been agreement made by both cyclists and the organisations. You know, just try and do it reasonably well and lads, we, we promise not to catch here. And you do, I just wonder, when you have a situation like that and the suspicion is that, and this may be an unfounded suspicion or incorrect suspicion that every single competitive cyclist was in fact doping at that play at that point haven't we actually effectively achieved a level playing field all over again well i think you know there is a strong argument to uh, to allow the doping but require people to reveal what they're taking because michael if you are willing to run your body into the ground like that yeah i mean that seems to me to be the very spirit of the olympics it's it's the new corinthianism i am willing to take any drug inject myself with any chemical go through any procedure just to get that sweet sweet success to get that crown that laurel to be awarded that cup of Olympian wine I will do anything that's that's what a champion is that's a real test of a champion it's also why so many uh, strongmen try and retire as early as possible it's also why a number of strongmen collapse and die of heart attacks when they're 37 interesting thing about human growth hormone Michael causes enlargement of the heart which is a bad thing it's a bad I can tell you it's a bad thing I know it is a bad thing actually so I I had always meant to do something on a, a show or something on steroids because I don't think people realise how um, prevalent they are now and how easily they are to to get and how many of the people you see on a fairly regular basis are using steroids particularly movie stars I don't is it it's hard to know these days there was a time if you went to a gym that it, it, it felt like half the guys in the gym were on steroids and I'm not talking to professional athletes Gary I'm talking about the guys who were there and were wanted you know to you wanted the big guns or the, the big pecs or whatever and there would be somebody in the bigger gyms in the urban areas there would be somebody who would be hanging around the locker area who had that look about him that you could go up to and he'd say if you, you'd ask him for some help for some supplements that he specialised in supplements and of course it, it would mean that you get but one of the things he'd get was acne as I remember the steroid the guys taking steroids they have terrible back acne and well acne anywhere really so that was the way you tell and now I wonder 
have they got? Is that you don't see so much of the acne on the on the, on the guys? Um, I wonder uh, is there less steroids being taken amongst the sort of the the amateur gym population, or have they worked out how to take steroids without giving you acne? So a couple of things to point out there. Um, the first is that I would say the majority of people using steroids look like shit. There are people who want to look good but don't really know what they're doing, and also aren't willing to put in the work because steroids will allow you to do a lot more and ensure that your results are substantially better than what you could do if you were natural. They speed, don't they speed up muscle acquisition? They can speed up muscle acquisition. They will dramatically reduce um, the period uh, afterwards, the soreness, the, the weakness. They can make you feel stronger. They can give you more. They can do a ton of stuff. And it also depends what you're taking um, because it used to be that steroids were very basic in relation to gym going. And there were a couple that people would take and they would just kind of take them not really knowing what they were doing. Now there is a whole cornucopia of very interesting pharmaceuticals. Uh-huh. Tren is probably the funnest one. Um, Trembolone. It's it's heavily used in like, kind of gym people, but it can cause paranoia. It can cause uh, significant mood swings. If you hear people talking about things like roid rage, uh, probably stuff like Trembolone. It's it's famous for its ability to fuck your mind up. Um, but people have gotten a lot better at cycling things, and there, there is a lot more information out there. Um, but yeah, a lot of it will still give you stuff like acne, or it'll just fuck up your hormone levels severely if you don't know what you're doing. One of the things... Did, with the, in cyclists, was one of the things that was a uh, blood. Did they do blood transfusions? Am I am I dreaming that they used to give them a fresh? I think they do that with horses as well. There's something about I may have dreamt that, but th- they get uh, like super blood. So th- there is a thing called um, there is a thing called blood doping, mm. and yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it is certainly a thing. I'm actually not sure. And like blood transfusions were widely used in cycling. Yes, that is that is actually true. But I can't remember what it was for. I think it was increasing oxygen levels. If some, if that was the thing. Uh, and maybe endurance. That When you think about the Tour de France, it is an incredible thing. It is a bestial uh, event for which mixes up terrible endurance with ex- at the, and then at the same time you have to have a capacity for explosive speed and they are beasts I remember there was a guy interviewing him, uh, being interviewed about uh, great cyclists of the 80s and he, he named a, he named a couple well known at the time very well known names and he said that one of them if you're up in the mountains with him and he did and he, it was he was in I don't know maybe it was dissociated with steroids but I don't think so I think this was just his personality if he was in the, if you were in a place where the cameras couldn't see you and he could he would try and, he would try and throw you off the edge of the the edge of the the the, the, the mountain he didn't give a fuck he, he was just an animal and he would literally bite people on going by if he could get at them. This is a... So they will do the most bizarre things. I mean, dr- doping in the Tour de France goes back to the very beginning. Yes, yeah, so let's move on from a replacement of blood for sporting powess to something that just sucks blood without any reward. The National Women's Council of Ireland. <laughs> um, I, quite, I, I, I quite enjoyed that transition, actually. Yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I'd be interested to see what you leave it in uh, on reflection, but there you go. I've made my choice. They used to, the national, what is it, the National Women's Council of Ireland it used to have a different title, didn't it? It was the National Council for the Status of Women, I think originally, wasn't it? I love the titles of these things. Do you, rem- you, no, you won't remember because you're too young, but 
back in the day when the Catholic Church used to have more than a, a, a degree of influence, there was an organization uh, which was chaired at the, by, I think even back a hunt then, a million years ago, well, Sean Healy was still in the boss of it, but it was called the National Council of Major Religious Superiors. And it was sort of, the, it was the boss of the Jesuits, their Redemptorists, I don't know, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, I don't know who was in it, but it was the, the it was the, 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 it was the Council of the Major Religious Superiors. And they were always commenting on government policy, you know, with all of the wisdom and insight that even to this day, they, Sean Healy, Sean Healy yeah, displays. Anyway, they had made some kind of critical comment about the budget in 87, I think probably it was. Charlie Hoy, under, when Ray McSherry, Mac the Knife, was the Minister for Finance. And they, they actually achieved real, not uh, just real, but actual absolute cuts, cuts in absolute terms in the budget. And so it was all very bad. And Mr. Hoy was asked to comment about uh, the, the criticisms made of him by the Council for Major Religious Superiors. And Hoy responded, I find it very hard to take seriously any organization which contains the words simultaneously major religious and superior and you know what gary they had changed their name within 10 days <laughs> i can't remember the nwci's original name but i can remember the original nickname they had what was that the council for the women of status that yeah so i think it must have been the council for status of women that was it. And it was absolutely it was such a ridiculous thing. So the NWCI, NWCI is in a bit of trouble because the government has had a um, what seems to be a moment of dawning realisation, which I imagine that they will forget <laughs> nearly immediately. A moment of clarity. These people who they give massive amounts of money to may in fact be seeking some sort of political aim, Michael. And that rather than being just the sort of thing that exists and does nothing, NGOs may actually be trying to influence policy. The thing is, Gary, Anybody who'd been paying attention to this podcast would have been aware that there were clues, Gary. There were clues already out there. Subtle clues, but they were there. Like when they launched their manifesto or their proposal for policies before the last general election, things like we want the destruction of the capitalist exploiter state. That was a clue to some. That was a hint, yeah. And I think, you know, we want uh, annualized reductions in emissions by, I don't Ten percent or something, and we want all the poor, all the rich people except our husbands to be taxed until they're dead, and all the money to be given to the lovely poor people, or at least to be given to those organisations responsible for helping out the lovely poor people. Bold of you to assume the sexuality of the NWCI. This is true. Uh, I shall go. I will whip myself later, Gary, but I won't do so now for the sake of the listeners. You you hear this story and you go, what trigged them to the fact that this is clearly true? Was it that, you know, they finally bothered to read anything that these people had said for the last decade? Or that they had thought about the fact that these people keep turning up, talking to them about these issues? Almost as if they're lobbying them. Talking and or even at times, guy, it might feel like lecturing. Hmm, or the fact that they're releasing manifestos for political parties to sign on to. That, I feel, is probably a hint. Yeah. That it's a lobbying organisation that has political views. But especially the, to sign on to, and they sign this, Gary, they sign it because the press office tells them, we're sending over a yoke for you to sign. And then, but the, oh, the, it was joyful, dear listeners, if you anybody remembers, when we pointed out to some of the TDs what they had actually signed, the speed at which those signatures, those electronic signatures disappeared. 
was it was a joy to see. It was a genuine pleasure. I think that was the first story that was taken from me by someone in the mainstream media without any sort of oh this is where we got it because shortly thereafter that point I think it was RTE published it or the Irish Times one of them but no it wasn't any of these things it wasn't any of the things that mean this is obviously true it was the fact that they're holding a um, a meeting and they didn't invite anyone from the government parties to it well now fair, no, for, 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 for us, they, they're holding a meeting at the Dáil and they're in, in and they were going to invite all the lovely women in politics. But they didn't invite anybody from Finna, any of the nice women from Finnafor or Finna, from Finnegal. They invited the very lovely Ivana Batchish. They invited the uh, ever enchanting Roshin Shorthall or whatever. But someone, the Finnegal Fina uh, girl or the Finnegal. No, no. And they're very upset, Gary. They're all over Twitter being upset. They were. Did they invite any of the green ladies? I don't believe so. No Fine Gael, no Fine Fall, no Green. And this is the thing. This is the thing, more than anything else, that made people sort of go, this seems political, doesn't it? Just a bit, yeah. So it was fine when they were being invited to all of the obviously political things, but you don't invite them to a particular party, and then there's suddenly, you know what, this entire time I may have been misled. Hurt, Gary, I think that's the word you're looking for. One thing that came out of this that I think is very interesting is when this came out, people started mentioning that the NWCI, it's it's funding from the state. Yes. It's massive funding from the state. In fact, it's nearly total funding by the state. Well, now that Atlantic Philanthropy is no longer in the business, it, yeah, the state pretty well does all the heavy lifting. And people were starting to say things like, how can this be a non-political entity when it's paid by the state? Hazel Chu, by the way, had the best take on this. She tweeted out, NGO literally means non-government organization and then basically a little spiel about how it's um, not a subject of concern and I can understand Hazel Chu doing that because the sector is her most likely next stop of employment but did you notice the paper she, I, I, which I thought was fantastic that these are run and contro- by by boards of directors and there are strictly adhere to rules of corporate government which are heavily regulated I'm just going to say this as someone familiar with the regulations overseeing the functioning of charity that's bullshit. Gary, there is one prominent charity which is engaged in the area of gender politics which didn't return uh, accounts for 10 years and was still in receipt of government funding. Despite a government minister previously saying that that funding would be cut off if they didn't comply. Yes. So the notion of this heavy-handed nicotine governance is just... It, it is to laugh, Gary. It is to laugh. And she knows bloody well it is to laugh. Uh, why she would say such a thing which sounds almost like she wanted people to believe something which wasn't true. I don't know. But the, the notion that perhaps we should examine the political ideology of NGOs which are taking massive amounts of money from the state and which have grown over the last 40 years like some sort of cancerous tumour, people seemed outraged that such a thing could happen, Michael, because obviously the state should be paying these people and there should be no further questions because they're respectable, trustworthy people. There is nothing to see here. Move along. I mean, they are people who have often dev- devoted quite a lot of time to building perfectly legitimate relationships with government departments to ensure that they continue being funded and of course those relationships might Michael have some sort of element of give and take or perhaps taking the department's views on certain things yeah given that the department could at any time say actually no we're not going to keep paying you uh, you all lose your jobs now that has to be at the back of the mind you'd imagine you know 
Yeah. And the interesting thing about this is that, yes, the government isn't being invited, but this is an incredibly weak government who's highly unlikely to do anything. And the people who are being invited are Sinn Féin, who are expected to be the next government. Labour. Social Democrats, people before profit, who are all expected to be minor partners. The sort of people who groups like the NWCI and other NGOs might actually like significantly more than Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. Uh, I think that they are much more likely to be found inviting these people to dinner than the troglodytes from the dark side. And I mean, at the point that the NWCI thinks that Sinn Féin is better than you, eh, you've lost respectability there. You're really, you're not, you're not doing well. So obviously these groups are political groups. They've been political groups for years. They may initially have not been political groups, but it is natural that they would become them because like the NWCI, as it does more, as it gets the issues it once dealt with, every NGO faces a tendency to broaden the spectrum that it's concerned with. So it's no longer about the laws stopping women from working. It's now the impact of climate change on women. Because remember, if the NWCI at any point solves the thing it's meant to solve, they all don't have jobs anymore. Yeah. Or Organizations, NGOs, historically do not fix the issue that they are determined to do. It's why the LGBT uh, charities like Stonewall went so big into transgenderism, because they needed something to do. And it was either that or pack up. It doesn't matter if it's a good or bad idea. It's what's going to happen. No organization is going to commit suicide. Uh... They're going to keep, they're going to find a reason. There are always going to be a reason to stay in existence. Can you draw the line for me, Gary, and throwing this at your head maybe is unfair. How would you draw the line between an NGO and a Quango? Generally, the issue would be government control and government funding. But Quango is a quasi-autonomous. Like, an awful lot of these NGOs, I, mean, I, I just think a lot of the NGOs are fundamental, they're funded by the government. I mean, they may have other sources, but they're fun- So they're both funded by the government. They both have ind- their sets of directors. Is it who appoints the director? I mean, the way I would generally say it, because you can, it, it's kind of a, a hard, soft power debate. You can have something where it is explicitly written the government oversees it, in which case, quanga. But I would argue that you should also include organizations where if a member of the civil service or the government were to come to you and tell you that they wanted something done and it was understood that your funding could be contingent upon it where you would feel you had to do it. If you get yourself in the position that you are reliant, actively reliant on government funding without which you would fall, I don't see that you're not a quango anymore. I don't see you're not a quango. You're, an, you're not an NGO anymore. In fact, you're a quango. No, the political and reality of the differentiation is actually nil. These body, in Ireland, quangos and NGOs a lot of the time basically behave in fundamentally the same way. They're the same people with the same aim with the same ideology, the same spiritual philosophy, whatever, and they're doing the same thing. So it's not, it's a, it's a, and it's also a game of musical chairs. I mean, we've talked about this before, that they're following people around the circle from board to board to board to board is sometimes, they're hilarious. I mean, so the number of boards that some people have been on in this country and the diversity of the boards they have been on show that there are people that are of remarkable capacities. Yeah, and you'd be surprised how much money you can make from being on boards, although depending on exactly the type of board and exactly the type of organisation, you may be prohibited from receiving any direct cash income from it. But mileage isn't considered to be uh, an income. 
Mileage is considered to be an expense. And mileage at the civil service rate, Michael, it might shock you to find out, can actually be very lucrative. Oh, listen, I remember saying to a friend of mine, well, a person, a politician with whom I was friendly, and I'd done a bit of work. And I said, you know, if you ever get on, you get in the position to, to be divvying up a few, a bit of the old patronage there, I don't want much. All I want to be is on the the board of the port of Killybakes. Because just for f- the mileage just would have been fantastic. Generally, in these things, they'll pay rates. They'll pay expenses at the civil service rates. So you are looking at somewhere between, like for the first 1,500 kilometers, it can be up to about 45 cent. Yeah. For the next 4,000 kilometers over that, it's 80 cent, I think, a kilometer. I have seen people pull in spectacular amounts of money through these things. People who were not being paid technically, but were making like a good living on basically just mileage claim. Absolutely. Uh, if, you're doing a, if you're doing a decent amount of driving, right? If you're doing a decent amount of driving, you're going to go past that 1,500 kilometers so quickly and you go up to the 4,000 and you're on 80 kilometers. And put it this way, just as, a, as an example, if I were to get the job for Killy Beggs, that would give me roughly my, 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 my up and down journey would be 800 kilometers. So assuming I'm over on the 80, that's 640 quid. And I would make this other point, Michael, it's very hard to validate mileage claims. How? I mean, if someone said I drove 25,000 kilometers and that's why this organization gave me 13,000 euro a year. There is actually a way you could do it, but nobody's ever going to do it. Well, you see, Michael, the other thing to understand there is the civil service rate is the rate at which revenue officers are paid and uses the same procedures. So it has long been the understanding amongst people that if you say that you're applying these, it will never be checked. Because if it was checked and it became some sort of public outcry... The people who were checking you might might lose out. So, no, no, Kiko Stolis, Stolis, you know, you're not, you're not going to be checked. I've often thought that the most terrifying thing for people who are in that kind of business, or even in business, but where the mileage is not maybe their main source, but it's a nice bit of top up. The most terrifying thing would be if somebody said from the account said, "What we would like is." Could everybody just please print out their Google Map timeline for the last month, which will show basically where where everybody had been? And I think that at that stage, the number of people who will have, oh, well, actually, I had forgotten my phone that day, or by accident, I had just deleted all the cookies and memory off my phone and cleared my Google cache. It's a, such a pity. It's a, it is really worrying, actually, when you look at your Google timeline, the degree of precision that you can write down to the street. Also quite funny that, um, yeah, you're like, I drove 42,000 kilometers as part of this job I'm technically not paid for. Yeah. I'm like, that seems legitimate. Why not? Why not? Hey-ho. So... I don't, I don't think they're going to realize. I think the issue here, the actual issue here is not people realizing that the NWCI is a political organization. It's people realizing that the NWCI is a political organization that may not align with their own views. I have, I have to say now, I was surprised at the cack handedness of this. Yeah, it's, it's something that's happening. Sinn Féin are getting much greater traction with the civil service organisations now, even the ones who traditionally wouldn't have gone near them, because the expectation is they will be part of the new government. So you have, like, your IBEX, your NWCIs, 
they're cozying up in a big way. But at the same time, elections can change, and you don't want to piss off the current government. It's, it's like, you don't make an enemy, you don't have to. I, what would it have cost them to invite half a dozen Fianna Fáil women, Fianna Gael women? I mean, what, it would, what would it have changed? It was almost, it was, it was so explicit and so obvious. It felt, it feels like a calculated, deliberate snub. And I cannot understand why an organization which suckles at the state, teeth as they do, would take the kind of risk of insulting these people to the point where they actually wake up and think, does this, does this mean that actually you don't like me? I'd always thought we were, but we don't. I always thought we were friends. I thought you liked me. You don't like me. And that would be very hurtful. I mean, we all know Gary. Well, I've heard people talk about people who aren't invited to parties. It must be very hurtful. You know, there's a big party on and nobody's invited you. And then they post all their fins, their photographs on Facebook and this on Instagram. And they've done little videos on TikTok and you're not there. It's all the way taunting. I just think it's an incredibly inept decision by the by by the council national council of women uh but maybe it's indicative of both their mindset but also their their political this their sense of security they must have no sense of risk at all which would mean that if they were to get a bit of a cut across the knee it would be very very nice to see i have noticed a certain nervousness amongst people because of the nwci thing because the immediate reaction was people going how can these people do that when they take so much money from the public and people there is a certain segment of people that did not like that line of questioning just did not like it and it's particularly funny considering how many of the you know left-wing activists in the state are actually paid for on you know, by the state so there's a sort of i am a radical who will bring down this system and i am i do find it kind of curious how many of their comrades every now and then look at them and go but your entire livelihood is dependent on that not happening yeah there are a few few figures i think in particular who are very very influential in that sphere who if i was in that space i don't think i would have any confidence in their should we say um you know deep in their heart michael that they actually have a commitment to doing this as opposed to they have a commitment to ensuring it keeps going as long as possible while making them look good but i suppose that's something for the left to sort out for themselves I think one of the uh, one of the moments, Michael, where they probably should have realised that a lot of these NGOs had a bit of a political you know, slant to them, including the NWCI, was you remember in end of 2020, they signed a letter titled A Call for Irish Solidarity, and it was about gender critical views. And that, I'll give you an exact quote from that, Michael. We call on media and politicians to no longer provide legitimate representation for those that share bigoted beliefs. Now, I think at the point an organization is calling for the removal of legitimate political representation uh, for those who... Now, this again is about gender-critical beliefs, so it's on trans things. Um, I think at that point, you can probably say these organizations are political and also calling on things that would seem to be directly contrary to their stated mission, like the the National Women's Council of Ireland signed that letter. The National Women's Council of Ireland is meant to represent women and sign a letter calling on women to be stripped of political representation. If those women didn't agree with the National Women's Council of Ireland, that to me would indicate that um, the primary objective of the NWCI is political aims. Yeah, and political aims which are they, they have generated internally. It's not. There's no way in the world that you can somehow make the leap from that kind of position to the position that this is, number one, generally representative of the beliefs and the opinions of the women of Ireland, or secondly, that this is in the interests of the women of Ireland and their advancement. I would say if it was commentary, 
that that belief that is number one, obviously and explicitly political. It is also by it is disreputable and totalitarian. I do enjoy that the National Women Council called on the reduction of political representation for women, though. Those women, they've just got too much representation in politics. Yeah, 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 those those, those people. They we thought we wanted it, but we've had it, and now we've decided just too much of it. Too much of it. We don't want them. We don't want them. Not that kind. But sure, of course. I mean, these are the same people who would say that Margaret Thatcher wasn't a woman because when you know, she's the first prime minister, first female prime minister. Of the, no, no, not really. She's not a woman. And then Theresa May uh, was, well, she was a failed woman, God knows. And when we have, if Priti Patel comes in, she will be neither a person of colour nor a woman for, again, the same reasons, because she's not the right kind of woman and not the right kind of person of colour. But you know what, Guy, as, as amusing and as enjoyable as it always is to discuss the eternal process, I think that the rain is easing here, and I see the possibility that maybe, maybe in a couple of hours, the sun will start to shine. So shall we say, draw uh, a gentle cloth over the face of this cadaver and call it a day? And we'll release our listeners back into the wild. I think so. I think they should go frolic in the nature. <laughs> yeah. let, let them go frolic. So till next Sunday, barring accidents, have a good week. All the best. <laughs>